Good evening to you all. Um, my name is Christine Chinkin. I'm director of the Center for Women, Peace, and Security here at the LSE. And um, my first task is to welcome you all um, this evening and to say just how delighted it, we at the Center are to be hosting this event this evening. And special welcome to my friend and colleague, Catherine McKinnon. Um, it's great to see you back here at the LSE. It's so great to be here. So, yeah, that's, uh, that's fantastic. Okay, a couple of announcements before I sort of formally introduce Catherine. Silence your phones, um, the usual. And if you want to Twitter, there is a hashtag somewhere here, um, at LSE McKinnon. Okay, so... Um, you can do that. And as you will have gathered, there is a recording of the event, uh, and the podcast will be up online on the Centre's website, technology permitting, of course, one always has to say that, um, in a few days' time or so. Okay, now, it's a very customary thing at the LSE when people are introducing public lectures to say, well, the speaker doesn't actually need any introduction. Um, I think in this case, especially for people who are um, familiar with feminist theory, feminist legal theory in particular, um, this is absolutely true. And Catherine is synonymous, I think, um, with those things. And indeed, studies document that Professor McKinnon is among the most widely cited legal scholars in the English language which, again, seems to suggest you don't need any introduction, uh, Catherine. But um, I will give a very short um, time. We have very limited time tonight, so I'll make it a very short um, formal introduction. But um, a over 40-year career in issues relating to feminist legal theory makes it very difficult to curtail it down into sort of about one minute. But Professor McKinnon holds a BA from Smith College an SAJD from Yale Law School, a PhD in political science from Yale. She's taught in a whole range of university law schools, Yale, Chicago, Osgoode Hall, Stanford, Baal, Columbia, and others. She's the James Barr Ames Visiting Professor of Law at Harvard Law School and currently Elizabeth A. Long Professor of Law at the University of Michigan. Um, her writings are voluminous, um, they include feminist, Feminism Unmodified in 1987, Towards a Feminist Theory of the State in 1989, Only Words, 1993, Women's Lives, Men's Laws, 2005, and I think the famously titled Are Women Human in 2006. Now tonight, and I've left it over here, Catherine is introducing her new book, Butterfly Politics. <laughs> yes, right, you can see that it's been... Um, well perused, um, you've also seen it outside uh, as you've come in. Um, I think it's another title that's likely to become sort of um, well-known, well-cited, Butterfly Politics, in the same way as Are Women Human has done so. It essentially relates through a number of essays that reflect Catherine's long, for, as I said earlier, 40-year-plus career in... Um, legal litigation, well, litigation with respect to women's human rights, um, activism with respect to women's human rights, um, her overall commitment to quote that human rights litigation offers people an opportunity to get their humanity back 
and also, and not surprisingly, given the list of universities, um, as a legal educator and a legal teacher. Um, I think, actually, I'll stop there and let Catherine speak for herself. Okay. So, Catherine, we're delighted to welcome you tonight and look forward to your lecture. Um, the lecture will be about 35, 40 minutes, so leaving at least a short time for questions and discussion. So, over to you. Thank you so much, uh, Christine Chenkin, for inviting me, and to Zoe Gillard for all of her work putting this together, and Soraya also. Um, it takes a lot of work to make things like this look effortless, and you know, so the, and they're the ones who have done it. Um, I also remember vividly every time I've ever been at this school. Um, you are, I'm sure you know this, but a remarkably vibrant. Uh, diverse group of people that, you know, just, I don't know, you just give off a certain electric brilliance about you. Um, <laughs> just sitting there, honestly. And, you know, also you don't just sit there. And so, you know, I'm greatly looking forward to talking with you about all of this. Um, now, in law, I've done a lot of theory. I've done a lot of practice. What I haven't done a lot of is theorizing my practice. Uh, so this is that. Uh, the idea of butterfly politics is an attempt to conceptualize 40 years of intervening for social equality through law, uh, specifically through strategic engagement with challenging gender hierarchy in an attempt to change the realities of sexual abuse on the ground. And what this book collects, and I'm going to be talking about its central theory and some of the key examples in it, are mainly actual moments of activism, um, caught on tape, almost none of which have been previously published, and some reflections on them. Um, what I've learned is that changing the power structure involved, and in my work, that power structure is male dominance, and focusing on sexual harassment, rape in and out of genocide, pornography and prostitution principally, that the power that, that everything involved in this work is collective. It is not an individual project. It takes a movement. Uh, second thing I've learned is that it's deeply contextual and grounded. It springs from the realities of social life and its relationships, rather than coming full-blown out of any individual person's head. It is also totally contingent. That is, it's neither inevitable as the left would have it. You know, whenever you accomplish anything, the left tells you it had to happen, right? Um, nor is it impossible, uh, as actually the right imagines or actually hopes. Um, it actually matters what you do, is the point of this contingency business. And everything about it, and this is the fourth thing, is content-based, meaning that it is substantive. It is not abstract. In terms of process, I've learned that it all turns on the right intervention, however small. So collective, contextual, contingent, and context-driven, and see what you think uh, about how this, this model works out. So the butterfly politics term. In 1972, when Conrad Lorenz, the Austrian scientist, gave a talk, he titled, Does the Flap of a Butterfly's Wings in Brazil 
set off a tornado in Texas? He answered yes, and in the process coined what is called the butterfly effect. What it does is it charmingly models how some extremely small, even very simple actions properly targeted can come to have highly complex and large effects in certain contexts. Now, he did this mathematically. I don't. Uh, somebody could, though. Um, so, yes, a butterfly opening and closing its wings in Brazil can ultimately produce a tornado in Texas. According to chaos theory, that is, that chaos theory's understanding of complex causality in dynamic, unstable systems, weather, for example, is predicted a lot more accurately these days as a result of its application. So butterfly politics means that the right small intervention in an unstable political system can ultimately produce large, complex reverberations. And given that male dominance it has been regarded as being as inevitable as weather, and given that we have changed the weather even more than we have changed male dominance, there's a certain symmetry uh, here. Now, butterfly politics is one way to understand how strategic intervention can affect systemic transformation in the gender system, internationally, domestically as well. The butterfly metaphor highlights certain crucial dimensions of legal political activism, including the domain of the action, the strategic choice of moments of initiation, the dynamics of interaction, including blowback, the collaborative, collaborative effects of collective repetition, and the simultaneity of retrospective and prospective causality. Now, that's all a big mouthful. Um, in the book, the butterfly effect provides then a metaphorical framework for organizing a selection of activist legal and political speeches and writings from my advocacy from 1976 to the present. Many of them mark the first time that an idea that is now familiar or established showed its face in public. I call this its butterfly moment. The small perturbation, the con the consequences of which turned out to be, or are turning out to be, uh, variously large. In collecting these attempts to change the inequality of women to men and reflections on them, the analysis looks forward and back at the same time. The present is the future. The past is the present. Uh, the, the, cohere, the theory coheres this activism that through collective movement has eventuated in uh, change in gender relations through law or is in the process of doing so. So as to the nature of the domain, if any social system is complex and unstable, it has to be sex inequality. Complex, among other reasons, because of its simultaneous multiple interacting variables, prominently including race, class, sexuality, and age, as well as gender, and gender, of course, analyzes men as well as women. Yes, men also have a gender, not just women. Now, it's intrinsically unstable, not in the least, because it is predicated on the lie of women's natural inferiority to men and men's natural superiority to women, termed difference in ideological, legal, and common parlance. Life, given half a chance, refutes this lie every day, 
And I guess what we have means it hasn't been given half a chance. Now, this system for structuring and distributing power, that is a system of hierarchy of status, which makes it political, being that it is power-based, hierarchical, uh, and status stratified, in the face of evidence and contestation of its false basis and even some acknowledgement of its injustice has proven extraordinarily tenacious, cross-culturally everywhere. So obviously, accurately identifying the social content of a system into which a legal intervention is contemplated is pretty crucial. So what is the equivalent here of the air the butterfly moves when it flexes its wings? In this respect, I think that much work for sex equality has largely failed, or rather has addressed mainly symptoms, which do need addressing, but don't go to the roots of the problem. Conventional approaches usually don't face the key dynamic of inequality, which is hierarchy. It's a dynamic. It's not just a two-cell table, right? In sexism, the hierarchy of men over women and some men, here I point to gay men as a very key instance, or the key lived site of the operation of sexism, that's also typically avoided in sex inequality approaches, which is sexuality. Weather models, for instance, wouldn't work either if scientists ignored small, consistent rises in global temperature because they just didn't like thinking about climate change. Legal strategies that prefer to contend with dynamics that aren't what is driving things or on the terrain that is where it is principally being driven because that produces less opposition or is more pleasant for campaigning can do some things, but it can't hope to fundamentally alter those dynamics, especially when they are structurally entrenched as these are. So dominant approaches to inequality have misdiagnosed the nature of this system, hence the necessary interventions to change it, including its rendering of the social status quo baseline as natural, and prominently the gaslighting of survivors of sexual abuse. As this has all gone on, some of the most substantial changes made in sex inequality through law have occurred through unconventional and unprecedented approaches and arguments at small levels, often with no institutional backing, specifically by me. The legal claim for sexual harassment, for instance, begun in the United States and now worldwide, along with the full theory of substantive equality that was embedded in it like a cocoon and growing out of it ever since, what this does is it challenges Aristotle's likes-alike, unlikes, unalike theory to equality and replaces it with an approach that is based on promoting the equality of historically disadvantaged groups as begun this is substantive equality now, as begun in Canada um, in 1989 and extending worldwide in a number of countries and increasingly embraced in the international system. This exemplifies this dynamic I'm talking about in high relief. Sexual harassment's development 
also illustrates chaos theory's concept of orderly disorder in complex systems of nonlinear dynamics, producing difficult-to-produce outcomes that are initiated from unexpected small locales. Chaos, you, you will see from this, doesn't mean chaotic in the usual sense, that is lacking coherence or pattern. Complex patterns emerge in what initially appeared patternless. Chaos theory regards complexity and nonlinear causality's difficulty of prediction, not as a failure of analysis, but as the analysis itself. An example is when sexual harassment law's existence essentially elected Bill Clinton president in the United States. That is, political scientists found that women outraged at the treatment of Anita Hill uh, in the hearings for Clarence Thomas's uh, confirmation to the Supreme Court provided the decisive margin of victory in that presidential election. And then Bill Clinton was impeached, um, not removed from office, but impeached uh, largely as a result of the concept of sexual harassment and the understanding of the way you know, it, it applied. Now, this was unexpected, certainly, by him. Um, <laughs> that we now have an admitted sexual predator in the White House, uh, could be said to show chaos theory's orderly disorder, um, as well as, of course, the persistence of regnant mis misogyny, really. Um, I'm not sure that he matters all that much, to tell you the truth, uh, as to the level on which this work is going on, but we can talk about that. Now, sexual harassment law also strongly illustrates chaos theory's central notion of sensitivity to initial conditions. This is often called sensitive dependence. And it means that even the smallest shift in conditions at the outset, such as the facts of particular cases, can eventuate in dramatic changes in the long term. Because it's neither linear nor mechanical, the common law, I think, can be a promising sphere of application for this model of complex repetition through its embrace of complex reality, which it's intended to do. See, this is part of my born-again common law thing that we talk about. And its rule of precedent. Now, it means a single breakthrough iterated through many variations can open a complex flood in a distinctive direction. Um, even as the precedential system resists an initial breakthrough because there is no precedent. Right, so you're, you're aware of the way this works. Um, for agents of social change, acting consciously, knowing that extremely small initial conditions can be amplified exponentially over time through systemic repetition to ultimately radically shift the way a system behaves presents the risk, the caution, and the hope. So the point of this part is setting things up right from the beginning is crucial, this being the takeaway moment for this part. Sexual harassment, for example, set up the claim as sexual and that that means it is gender-based because actually that is what the behavior is rather than, say, biological or a personal individual tort. Now this means, if you do it this way, that the repetition of the success is going to be stimulated in the domain that the problem actually lives in. As the abuses are repeated in the domain the problem inhabits in the real world. That is, the real world, sure enough, is going to keep confirming this theory if you choose the right theory uh, for your legal claim. 
And sure enough, over legal and political ups and downs across cultures, the basic paradigm of sexual harassment law as sex discrimination has pretty much held, changing society and politics as well as law. Largely, the right outcome repeats and has extended, for example, from women to men, that is, men being sexually harassed, uh, including by women, but also by men, and then, recently, to gay and lesbian rights as such, in which the sexual harassment same-sex precedent in sex discrimination law is then applied to recognize that discrimination against someone based on their sexual orientation is sex discrimination under existing law. So it moves in that way. And also along a slightly different route, transgender rights have been recognized similarly. And this is because the initial wing flap selected the accurate domain. Now, essential then for accessing this whole dynamic is calling problems in law what they actually are in life. Rape as torture in international law has worked the same way. And the piece that was the wing flap on that, you know, is, is also in the book. Um, another instance is the international definition of rape uh, in the Rwanda tribunal, specifically the Akayesu case, predicated on coercion, consent being so irrelevant as not to even require mention if coercion is present, which has survived repeated attempts to ignore it, although it has been sidelined and put up and put down, uh, but it has expanded its reach, uh, of which more in a minute. The development of the concept of gender crime on the international stage, where it is now accepted and uh, recognized, particularly at the International Criminal Court, is another illustration. Now let's just look at substantive equality for another minute. That doctrine in constitutional law, in particular in Canada, also illustrates chaos theory's notion that the specific tolerance that's built into nonlinear processes promotes course correction. As one scholar of chaos theory put it, this is a quote, simply put, a linear process, given a slight nudge, tends to remain slightly off track. A nonlinear process, given the same nudge, tends to return to its starting point. Now, remaining slightly off track is, I think, a charitable description of most attempts to make sex equality law work for equality in most places. Originally accepting the substantive equality theory of hierarchy in historic disadvantage, as I mentioned, and then applying that to hate propaganda, to uphold a hate propaganda statute in Canada, and in pornography cases, to uphold a pornography statute in Canada, after that, the Supreme Court of Canada then sort of lost its way for a couple of decades on this and used the old equality model under the name of the new one. Put another way, having escaped the clutches of Aristotle, they fell into the grip of Kant and suddenly discovered that inequality was all about dignity, which is part of it, but leaves out a lot. I mean, it's only some of it. It's not, you know, the whole big thing. And any new, it's, it's not a new discovery for anyone who knows anything about substantive equality, but they had forgotten what they knew, and so it was all about dignity. Okay, then 
they proved capable of course correction, returning to the original breakthrough, and returned to the view that actually, yeah, we were wrong about that, and it is really about hierarchy, and indignity is, as a relative status measure, is one index of hierarchy's damage, right? But hierarchy is actually the fundamental inequality dynamic. So engaging legal systems with linear strategies that participate in existing power dynamics will predictably simply reiterate them. Proceeding ever more determinately to no equality destination. By contrast, a nudge that engages nonlinear processes consciously, if it's begun correctly, can be part of changing it. So the legal theory of social change that emerges uh, from this business is that it is neither simply deterministic, as much legal realism would have it, nor cynically despairing, as critical legal theory could lead one to believe. Traditional theories, realism old and new, public choice theory, or pluralism, for instance, tend to be reductionist, linear, unreflective of social complexity, and unadapted to the substantive realities of male dominance in particular. We should, of course, look at consequences. They should be carefully considered. But believing that you can control them reveals an unrealistic, mechanistic, and linear illusion about the nature of social life, legal change, and political activism. Now, I've seen very few negative consequences, if any, of the work that I've done. But consequences that one did not intend or anticipate would only surprise someone who had never tried to do anything big or real. So by capturing process and practice in motion, butterfly political analysis opens onto complicated perceptions and deep understandings in the moment in which they are unfolding. It begins to explain how some change can be ongoing, ready to erupt given enough momentum, as say with pornography even when the inequality it challenges has blocked its realization. Exposing patterns where none were visible, it may reveal why certain arguments are persuasive, certain strategies have worked. Some changes have seemingly come out of nowhere to suddenly be everywhere. For example, the Swedish now Nordic model on prostitution, which penalizes the buyers and sellers of sex, that is, the pimps and traffickers, and eliminates any penalties for the sold, that is, prostituted people. As proposed originally in 1990, um, some references to that, um, passed in 1999 in Sweden, and now in many countries, despite the well-funded opposition of the sex industry. The butterfly analysis here isn't intended to apply to everything that has complicated inscrutable or illogical dynamics, or only to be narrowly limited to sex inequality. But it's proposed as a useful image here, maybe a heuristic elsewhere. I think beginning in other settings of inequality. So, some of the initiatives undertaken in the past 40 years have pretty much happened, meaning they are moving in the right direction, such as sexual harassment law. The law of rape as genocide first emerged from its cocoon in the case of Kadic and Karadzic, the first time it was litigated, and this was in the United States. And like, and that's actually the, my oral argument in the Court of Appeals is in that book. 
as is the summary, the final charge to the jury. Uh, neither of these things exist anywhere else in, in the world where you can find them. Um, so it was the first time the idea was litigated. And like all of these ideas, it's deeply imprinted by the context of the women's experiences who gave rise to it. In this case, Bosnian, Herzegovinian, and Croatian women. Some changes are in an ongoing process of being progressively accomplished. And this is, say, the Nordic model on prostitution. But all of this work, including this, that is the Nordic model on prostitution, is based on the experiences and needs of survivors who initiated all of them. Uh, and they have all started worldwide movements. In some instances, very butterfly movements have barely begun. And one example of that, in particular, um, is with sexual abuse of children, where, yeah, I think I want to start with rape first and then talk about sexual abuse of children. So domestic laws of rape typically turn on the concept of consent, as I alluded to while the international definition of rape is based on coercion and consent is irrelevant. Making consent central to rape law, what it does is it puts the victim on trial. This, I think, is why the British conviction rate is about 6.3%. It's essentially a pure consent law. It's rooted in the active-passive model of sex as something that someone with more power does to someone with less power, it is sex stereotyped and part of the larger political theory that justifies rulers in ruling the ruled. Does that sound like your sex life? Um, consent means acquiescence. It means being rolled over by power, whether or not any choice around it is a real choice. And it's intrinsically, even when it works as it's supposed to work, an unequal model. In a context internationally of vulnerability or abuse of power, that's a quote, the irrelevance of consent is clear in the international law of sex trafficking, namely paid rape, and has been expressly statutorily irrelevant since at least 1949. I guess they've known something for a while. The domestic laws of rape, I think, need to take consent out and reconfigure their definitions of force to extend beyond physical force to the forms of inequality that make rape actually possible, which include race, class, sexual orientation, actually, gender identity, disability, and age, as well as gender stereotypes. So that's a place where, you know, there's one butterfly moment arguing this, but this is barely begun to happen. And in case you're wondering if there isn't a lot left to do, um, <laughs> the continued virtually total impunity for sexual abuse of children arguably is the foundational practice of the whole system. It may be ground zero of sex inequality and its butterfly moments have barely begun. It is the foundation of prostitution and sex trafficking in that most people used in prostitution were sexually abused as children. Most enter prostitution under age. 
It is about what rape and sexual harassment and prostitution are all about. That is, forcing sex on those who have less power than you do. And actually, many, if not most, rapists were sexually abused as children. So to escape all this being done to them, what happened when one was sexually abused in childhood, many men become masculine, sexualizing power over others. To survive under this system, which, by the way, if you put all the studies together in the U.S., you get about 50% of the population being sexually abused in childhood before they reach, that is, the age of majority, in contact forms. So to survive under it, girls are taught to acquiesce in femininity, sexualizing power over us. In other words, sexual abuse in childhood explains more about the gender system, more about male violence, meaning violence, and more about sexual politics, meaning politics, actually, than any other thing one single thing does. And virtually nothing is being done about it, despite valiant litigation against certain institutions and actual laws against it. So Blackstone, you know, said, well, better ten perpetrators go free than one innocent accused suffer a wrongful conviction. As if these were alternatives, right? With sexual assault, we have both. Only given the real numbers, his numbers of free perpetrators are extremely low. Now, academia is another sphere uh, of potential activism. And I have found it far more resistant to all these ideas for change than society or law has ever been. Um, the fact that career success, often survival, of individual intellectuals, academics, and lawyers, along with other possible agents of change, meaning you all as well, is substantially predicated on pleasing power. This provides a powerful incentive to keep one's wings folded. Few real innovations are permitted in academia, and those that are raised reverberate almost silently by most measures, although many more students these days are proving resilient and resistant to silencing and subordination. Um, this happens ever more effectively, I've noticed, as one ascends the status scale among schools. Um, one hopes that this place may be an exception to it. Um, from some things I've heard, maybe, and people you have here possibly, one can hope, yeah? You will know. As all this illustrates, butterfly politics is not at all an individual dynamic. Uh, if a tornado eventuates, it's collective. Each initiative, all of them, actually, began with survivors' lives called narrative in scholarship, called facts in cases about which essentially nothing was being done, called impunity by me, um, followed by the first moves predicated on a relationship between the survivor and an advocate who was awake, unsettling the waters in what appeared to be an isolated local setting, such as the original proposal for a human rights law against pornography in which each cause of action for specific injuries had a specific victim's face. One major lesson learned is that law's power to make change, 
for instance, recognizing sexual abuse as sex discriminatory, which had never happened before, and underlies every one of these, does not come from law's place in the existing order of power. That, if anything, is what about it resists recognizing this change. Its power to change, actually, comes from law's hermeneutic location in social life. That is, what law means to people, the meaning people give to it. Even if all people aren't equal under it, and even if it doesn't deserve the meaning that they invest in it. The lawyer's power to make changes like those I've been involved in comes first of all from the alchemy of the relationship between the people represented, their lived lives, the location of their facts in social reality and consciousness, and the commitment and faithfulness of their actual representation in the legal system. But law can change reality not because of its place in a structure of force or authority, or because it establishes precedent that can be applied in future cases, and not because, as a vehicle of state power, it gets to impose itself onto life. It changes reality because of the meaning with which people invest it, including those people it has not represented. If people didn't believe in it, didn't believe that it could, against all the odds and much experience, be an instrument for them, it would not work for change. Actually, it wouldn't work at all. Because and when it does, it can. So this is why even a small percentage of women report their rapes to a broken legal system. It's why they feel vindicated when the law believes them and shattered when it doesn't. It's not naivete or blind trust or an illusion of a just world on their part. It's a determination to stand and fight for themselves and even more for others like them. With an inkling that the law in their hands can be a weapon combined with an insistence that law represent them and people like them for a change, which actually is where it is supposed to get its legitimacy from. So you look for this meaning on the faces of families when the murderer of their child is convicted, or in the eyes of women when their rapist or the architect of their genocide is found guilty. This isn't triumph, it isn't vengeance, and it certainly is not joy. It is that their lives or their honor or that of those they love, their people, might matter after all, that there's some mechanism of proportion in life between what was taken from them and accountability back for that, that they have been seen. And that is the miracle that they glimpse. Now, recognizing that law resists victories like this, which actually change the distribution of social power, Given that law is an instrument and product of power's existing distribution, theories of the relation of law to social change and also practicing lawyers who strategize cases take the view generally that the more basic the change, the more the legal system is going to resist making it. Now, there is some truth in this, but you know, I've found this to be a very limited truth. The legal system might not resist some changes that women seek because it doesn't know they're basic to women, not having given much thought to women until we did. Who had? 
law may not resist some needed changes out of institutionalized hubris. That is, they tend to regard women as trivial, beneath notice, kind of noblesse oblige, okay, honey, you want this here. You know, you can have this, take this. Or those who control law may reflexively think that whatever law says, the real social rules to the contrary are going to rule anyway, as with sexual harassment where, and rape, where the real rule is that the more power a man has, the more he can do what he wants, whatever the law says. Now, that's the real rule. Sometimes it works. But since we've done this, I think they better not count on it. Or an initiative will win for women because there's also something in it for men, as I think is true with the abortion right. Overwhelmingly, though, legal systems may not have arranged themselves to keep women down because they haven't needed to. Social systems, see here economic and social rights, social systems accomplish keeping women down very effectively already. So all these realities are where a theory of strategic litigation of butterfly politics, including internationally, begins. All this provides real openings. Also strategically, we have to keep in mind that gains for women, such as what rights against pornography would provide, can be successfully resisted by law because even if there isn't a law that actually applies to what it's doing to women, there are laws that protect men doing it to women. Now, in the U.S., uh, we have male dominance has the seemingly principled affirmative legal cover called speech in this case uh, to shift the issue from harm based on sex to constitutionally protected expression. It's the same way that law provided slavery, an affirmative principled legal cover, um, which the harm based on race uh, legally was called property. It's, it works identically. People buy these excuses. They keep repeating them in any case. But social change through law for women is not what, say, extrapolations from Marx may have thought. That is, he said, the worse it gets, the more likely a system is to be forced to change. Women's reality is a lot more straightforward. The worse it gets, the worse it gets. <laughs> it becomes harder to change, not easier, the more entrenched it becomes. And hard as it was, it was less difficult to address the pornography industry in 1983 than it is now. Nothing effective, having been done about it since, even as the social science and other evidence of its harms continue to pile up. The social scientists have not been sitting on their hands, right? They continue uh, to measure all of this. And now the neuroscientists are getting into the act. And it all shows over and over and over that the harms are real. Now, substance isn't generally seen as the key to process in law. I think it is. And the how question is, first of all, the what question. The major lesson that I've learned from practice on the ground on the question of how to produce social change for women through legal activism is that the who and the what are crucial to the how. That is, content, close-up content of each situation, its position in the structure is the key to strategy. In trying to move the plate tectonics of the world, content is what tells you where to insert the lever. It tells you what's big, what's small, what's cause, what's effect. 
it tells you what context is. You know, everybody's big on talking about context. They don't tell you how to tell what is the context. Okay, so the content tells you that. The substance, in other words, of the political analysis is what makes the legal strategy effective. Number two takeaway moment. This is absolutely not about figuring things out intellectually and then putting them into practice, actually. Uh, it's about strategizing to confront realities power does not want confronted, together with those who are harmed by them, who need that change made, who embody that change, and then confronting it. In other words, the power of political law for women comes less from the law than from the women and the politics. This may be the case for other things, I don't know. But what I do know is that substance, the content, is why talking reality to judges about sexual assault is effective when it is. Exposed to the light of day, having been almost entirely covered up, sexual assault looks like what it is, denigrating, devastating, destructive, denying of the victim's humanity, being defended as if the perpetrator has a right to do it. Substance is why legal work on sexual harassment, genocidal rape, pornography, and prostitution, win or lose, actually, have been empowering, not disempowering, transnationally as well as domestically, both for survivors and the groups of people who are in the groups that the survivors are in. And it is substance, the realities of gender hierarchy, that law is most designed to keep out of court. So butterfly politics reveals what is missing in the analysis of what can be done with law for women. And missing most is women, substantively. Women's location in existing political, social, and legal orders. Women's experiences of violation, especially sexual violation, with the failure to believe them. And the denigration of considering what was done to them to be a violation worthy of doing something about, even when it is believed. Most of all, what is missing is women's identification with each other and women's determination coming from who knows where to fly free of all of this. So what does law mean specifically to them? It means community. Your people stand with you. They hear you. They support you. It means reality. What you say happened, happened. Your knowledge is valid. It means vindication. The wrong that happened to you is wrong. It is wrong that you were wronged. Someone took something that belongs to you. You count. It means hope that what happened to you might not happen to someone else or to you again. That law is invested with this meaning. Not that it can provide closure because it can't. Not that it can order incarceration because although sometimes that is necessary, it does very little right and very much wrong. Not that it provides money damages, however deserved, because no amount can fully compensate. Law can't bring back a murdered child or unrape a woman or girl or man or little boy. Law's power to change lies in its capacity to restore a piece of the humanity the victimization took away. This possible chunk of wholeness, hope for it, this power that we give to law is what lawyers for violated people, 
whether they are rightfully vindicated or wrongfully convicted, hold in their hands. Butterfly politics can animate political activism, support equality advocacy toward this kind of change. Small actions in a collective context can change systems. Butterfly politics encourages multidimensional political thinking, precise engagement, principled creativity, imagination, instinct, and adaptability. It inspires interventions, even tiny ones. It opens discussion and debate on strategy and substance as part of a disciplined process of transformation toward equality of the sexes. It envisions and joins hands with old and new forms of organizing. Because in isolation, in image, butterflies are delicate, even fragile, and can be overlooked or reduced to decoration. In life, their endurance lies in their collectivity, their power in their collective effect. On its life journey, one butterfly can be collected and categorized. It can die for lack of nutrition. It can be smashed against a windshield. But still, we rise everywhere. So, equality seekers, spread your wings. You're stronger than you know. What butterflies can set in motion, sometimes even one, cannot be stopped. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, a very strong message, as I'm sure you'll all agree, and amplified many times in the book um, through the many essays. Now, um, we've literally only got 10 minutes, possibly a quarter of an hour. So um, can you please keep questions very brief and to the point? I'll take um, three or four, and I think that will be all we actually have time for. So we have somebody here in the front. Um, there's a roving mic. Could you say who you are, where you're from, please? But there's a mic coming, so it will need to be picked up for the um, podcast. Hi, uh, my name is Kathleen Richardson. I'm a research fellow at, in De Montfort University in Leicester, and I also founded a campaign called the Campaign Against Sex Robots. And... Um, this campaign was very inspired by your work, actually. Wow. I only became a feminist in 2016 after reading your book, Pornography and Civil Rights. Um, so thank you for that. It, it was an extraordinary book. But my question is about the ordinance, because um, I'm involved in campaigns in the UK about the Nordic model, trying to introduce the Nordic model here. And certainly when you look at Germany in terms of the expansion of prostitution... Um, could there be a case for trying to uh, create some legal, legal precedent to show the harm of that, the government policy in Germany on individuals as a way of rethinking how we might reintroduce the ordinance uh, theories back again into our feminist work? Thank you. Well, there was one at the back. Um, who was it? Yes, the person in the red shirt. Hi. Um yeah, my name's Sam. Um, I live in Kinson-upon-Thames. Um, 
Um, you mentioned inequality in uh, systems. Um, can you give an example of how there's inequality in academia? Inequality in academia, yep. Mm -hmm. um, uh, slightly further along, um, yes, there. We'll take three or four. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, I'm Chloe, I'm a PhD student in philosophy uh, here at LSE, and I was really interested uh, in the claims that you made about consent and how you think mm -hmm. Uh, that it should be removed from uh, domestic legal systems. Mm -hmm. I was just wondering whether you could say a bit more about that. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, here in the white, is there anybody up there? Hi, my name is Krista Bosch, and I'm a, an American lawyer now living in London. Um, I also went to Smith, and um, just want to say that your <laughs> work has been inspiring me since I was first introduced to it by my first-year con law professor, so thank you. Um, I'd like to um, get your opinion on um, this notion of um, providing substance in litigation, especially in, in um, the whole women's health case in front of the Supreme Court last year and how um, U.S. female lawyers gave briefs ex um, on their experiences having abortions and how that was something I hadn't seen done before in a U.S. Supreme Court case and whether or not you felt that that was effective in that case. Thank you. I'll take one. Oh, dear. I'll take this one down here. <laughs> and then I'm afraid, you know, we are very much against time. So um, the pink person with the pink shirt <laughs> right in the middle, which is bad for the microphone, it's coming this way. Yeah. Um, I'm a PhD researcher at the University of Sussex and Imperial College London um, at their respective law programs. Um, I do climate change litigation. That's what my thesis is on. You've certainly also for me, since I was a 1L, been an inspiration. Um, I wonder, particularly because the crux of your sort of title relies on this climate, gender, or equality kind of parallel, do you think then that this model is something that expands to not only gender but public interest litigation generally? Okay. Uh, a wide range. <laughs> and, this is great. Uh, just a few minutes in which to answer, so yeah. yeah. Um, uh, examples of inequality in academia are, are legion. And, you know, I, I could give hundreds. <laughs> just one. Okay, 12 years of discrimination against me. Uh, from the time I first uh, actually became the most widely cited scholar in the American legal system, and for those 12 years had no job. But it doesn't matter. Uh, yeah, oh God, yes. I mean, there are, I guess apparently someone's experience doesn't matter, but uh, <laughs> the, the, you know, there's a, there's a tremendous amount of data on how many women are at various levels in the legal system and in the academic structure, and at you know how many are professors and so on. So that's that's. Okay. Excuse me. Okay. It would help if you didn't talk over me um, because we can't hear you or me when that happens. Um, so there's you know a tremendous amount about it. I think probably that you could learn easily as much as anything I could say right now by talking to any s random ten people in this room. Um, and, the, you know, it, there's also an entire section in this book called Academia to which I would refer you. No, the, I'm sorry, we've got other questions. To, no, we're, we're done. Please, we're, we're done with We're that done question. with the question. Yeah. Um, the, um, 
I mean, it's it's such a softball question. It's really hard to. It, no, it's hard to resist. Shush. Can you um, please? Okay, I am now going to speak about the consent question. Um, there is a. Will you please? We have answered it. There's a chapter in the book. There are other questions to answer, and we're running out of time. So, you can you please um, yes. leave that now? The consent right. question. Um, actually, I did uh, write. Uh, where's, where's the person? Where are you? Oh, there you are. Um, I did write a full dress uh, analysis of it in the Harvard Law and Policy Review um, of this last summer, 2016, which I think you would find of interest. Um, it, you know, it has footnotes to uh, support the various asp- features and, and points in the argument. But the basic analysis is that um, the consent notion is most fully developed in political theory. Um, what I can't tell, and I've not been trying to find out from historians uh, of, of law, and they don't seem to know the answer, is whether it was first sexual and then became part of how the state was justified, or whether it was first used to justify the state, and then some bright person had the idea to transpose it from there to, um, you know, to, to sexuality. But the basic notion is, uh, in where it's given its fullest articulation theoretically, uh, is when the divine right of kings fell, um, then the liberals spent the next two to three hundred years having to figure out how they were going to justify the existence of the state and its rule over people who it rules, right? If it's no longer divine, what can possibly justify that there's this entity of power that has all this power, I mean, has all this force and exercises it over people? What can justify the state? Answer, consent, Okay. And so there's more explicit consent, and then there's tacit consent. And, but f- going around in all of that, and key to it, are number one, silence. How do you know people consent? They're silent. Sound familiar? It's not like it means dissent or anything. It, it's, it means you consent, because you didn't say you didn't. Whether anybody would be listening, whether it would make any difference, none of that counts. Silence, okay, is number one. Um, and number two is that you're there. Um, you don't leave. You're still here. Does that sound familiar to anyone? Um, what are you doing there um, if you didn't consent to it? Um, so, and basically, number three is that you get all these benefits from it. And these are elaborated as walking down the street, breathing the air, things of this nature. Um, so, you know, then all of that got transposed or or it went the other way, or there's some simultaneity of causality, which I'm looking forward to figuring out historically, especially from people who really research that issue, I mean, that, uh, that time period. Um, but it comes from liberalism, it comes from Britain, and every place Britain colonized, uh, they put it into the sexual law, and it's still all there in all those places, including the United States, and um, it's just become the one and only way that anybody can think about Oh my God! What are we going to do? Uh, you know, to have to define the sex that isn't okay if we don't talk about consent. So what people are doing lately is coming up with any of ten words to park at the front of it to try to make it mean anything at all. Since what it means is power initiates, less power acquiesces, and that's called consent. That's when it's working the way it's supposed to work, um, which I think is a pathetic model of sex. Uh, for any free people. 
You don't consent to sex you want to have. You know this. You don't have a great time last night. It was we had hot sex for all night. I consented. I mean, come on. You know, it, it like it doesn't live. It doesn't live in desire mode. You know. How about even a little enthusiasm? <laughs> you know, it doesn't even live there, right? It 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 lives in despair and and lost fights and even in death. You want to check out an interesting question? Can you rape a dead woman? There are discussions of this in U.S. law, and it has to do with the law of rape and whether it's a real element or whether it's only a defense, and on and on and on. But what they're what anyway? People have decided now they've got to do is rehabilitate consent by adding any one of or all ten words to make it mean anything like freedom, free, voluntary, chosen. You know, per, actively permitted, um, just on and on and on, and they're adding all these words in the front of it to try to make it mean something like what it's supposed to mean. And you know, I think that if rape is a gender crime, that means it's a crime of inequality, and that you don't consent to inequality. Say you get unequal pay, right? Nobody says, "But you took that money, therefore you're not entitled to equality of pay." Right? It's inequality is not something you consent to. It's a condition of life that is imposed on you that you have little to no option but to acquiesce in, given the lack of alternatives. Right? So you know we're rapidly in the process of establishing uh, one law for people in prostitution, i.e., who are pimped, i.e., paid rape, in which consent is irrelevant. And rape of everybody else, in which consent is free—is it voluntary? Is it actively permitted? Is it freely chosen? Is it blah 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 blah? And so I'm just saying, take it out, redefine force with all the elements of inequality that I enumerated instead, because that's what makes it possible for people to get a drop on somebody.、Um, We're going to have to have the others. Very very short, I'm afraid. Yeah, <laughs> it was very very short. I do think that it may be、uh, that this model could apply to public interest litigation more generally.、Uh, whether it applies, I mean, it's so interesting. I've always found the environmental law initiatives to be so applicable to the situation of women because we're everywhere. We are the environment, you know, and, and socially speaking. And so it, it applies that way. And if this could give something back、uh, to other. Uh, public interest litigation—that that would be great—and、um, I also think that I'm, I'm in, thinking about the connections that were quite brilliant, actually, made by the woman who asked about Germany prostitution, the harms, and the pornography law, because they are all intertwined. And I do have some thoughts about that. And international law, I think, may be the way to go there. And there are some expansion joints in it、uh, that that offer some possibilities. Um, so、uh, watch this space. Okay, look, I mean, I'm really sorry. We have got to finish, which well, is a great shame. Yeah, but explain about the about yes, the sign. Yes, yes, I was going to, was going to come on to do that. Two final、okay. things.、Um, one is you all saw that the book was for sale outside.、Um, you can still go and buy copies of it. Catherine is going to stay on the stage to sign. Any copies? If people want to, please make a sort of orderly queue and、um, sort of come up here、um, to have it signed. We'll do that. We can do that to the room、um, until six thirty. Two, one 
final thing before I finally thank Catherine again. Um, the Centre for Women, Peace and Security has a very active program. It's up on the website if people want to look at it. It's a magnificent um, thing. <laughs> <laughs> um, but one particular event I would just like to highlight, which is on the 6th of June at 6.30, a Tuesday night. Um, it's a documentary um, telling the story of a person who worked with rape survivors in the DRC, in particular mm -hmm. seeking healing, independence and justice. Um, it's a film, and we have the film director, Fiona Lloyd-Davis, and a particular guest to discuss it in a question-and-answer session afterwards. So in light of you know, much of what you've been saying tonight, that seemed a particularly obvious um, event to highlight. Um, I've said about signing the book. I've said about buying the book. So last thing is to once again thank you very much indeed. Um, thank you so much. Thank you.